The following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. I always uh, so much appreciate the opportunity to be here with uh, Friends of Israel at Willow Valley, and I'd like to return here in the time that I've got to a theme that I have developed in the past I'd like to take a little further, and that is, as it says, premillennialism and the glory of God. As a matter of fact, uh, I like to ask the question, what does literalism premillennialism, what does a literal reading of the Bible, taking God's word for what it says, which necessarily and certainly issues in a premillennial construct, a premillennial worldview? I insist that premillennialism is more than a distinctive eschatology. It's a worldview. We had that worldview powerfully and, uh, and delightfully set before us in the last hour as we contemplated with, uh, under, under the careful guidance of uh, uh, Brother Showers, as we contemplated that remarkable scene which only God could paint beforehand of that time when, in fact, oh, how I love that passage in Revelation 4 and 5, which is, by the way, I'm sure you know this, but if you haven't contemplated it, do so carefully, so immediately parallel to the scene in Daniel chapter 7, where after the four beasts are, are seen by Daniel in that remarkable prophetic vision, the Ancient of Days takes his throne and there appears before him one like unto a son of man. And that son of man is dispatched to establish a fifth world kingdom. And then again in Revelation 4 and 5, the heavenly throne room is convened. And uh, as, as the, the angelic and, and, and uh, the, 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 the beings that inhabit that place at that time uh, cry out in, in, in honor of the ineffable character and majesty of the God who sits in his throne, we begin to weep because there is no one to take the, the, that, that seven-sealed land deed and reclaim it. What a blessedness to be able to contemplate that even now. And uh, only God could pen that before, before it happens. But, but at any rate, the point is that... Uh, I, I think it's so important to acknowledge, well, let me back up. I think one of the glories of the literalist premillennial reading of Scripture, and as I say, it's, it, it really issues in a world view. It issues in a way not only we read the Scripture, but we live our lives. And one of the glories of that, of that literalist premillennial reading of the scriptures is that it celebrates the glory of God. And I want to identify some very specific ways in which I think that is true. Now, in, in, in the mid-70s, Dr. Charles Ryrie wrote a book which really had quite an impact. It had an impact on the thinking evangelical world, and quite frankly, it had an impact on a uh, young uh, a seminary student uh, named Doug Bookman. And that, that book was called Dispensationalism Today. Most of you have read that book, and uh, if you haven't, shame on you. Find it. It's probably here in the book table, and you ought to, you ought to get a hold of it. But one of, the, one of the, he began, and one of the great contributions to that book was that he very, very much and very deliberately cut to the quick of dispensationalism. And he said, uh, there's much that we can argue about, many details that we'll disagree about, 
But the synquinone, you remember this? Can you give it to me? What is Dr. Ryrie's synquinone of dispensational thought? Now, synquinone, if you don't recall, a Latin term which means uh, without which not. And the point is, this is the irreducible minimum. If If you don't embrace these three ideas, then you really can't fairly call yourself a dispensationalist. And and if you do embrace these three ideas, you, in fact, are a functioning dispensationalist, whether or not you ever heard the term. You know what I'm saying? What are they? You remember? Number one, literal interpretation. You take the Bible normally. You read it as a book. I always used to tell students, the Bible's a book. You read it like a book. That which distinguishes the way you read this book and the way you read other books is the set of presuppositions you bring to the book. You know that this is the word of God, and therefore you expect it to be inerrant. You know that this is the word of God, and therefore when you read spectacular accounts of the supernatural of miracles, you take it as true, whereas when you're reading a fairy tale book and you read that, you know it's just a fairy tale. Uh, Because another presupposition you bring to this book is that even though it was written by 40 different authors or so over, over 1,500 years, nonetheless, each of those books is going to be entirely consistent. Now, that's a set of presuppositions you bring to the book, but then you read it like a book, right? That, that's what normal interpretation is. I used to tell students that the, the, the big issue you have with this book is it's a big book and it's an old book, and so... You know, there's a lot there, and it's written out of a different culture, and so you have to work hard at it. But in fact, you read it like a book. So literal interpretation, normal interpretation, taking into full count no problem at all with figures of speech and hyperboles and word pictures and symbols and all that sort of thing. None of that obviates literal interpretation. But the second synquinone is the distinction between, between Israel and the church, that is, Uh, And this is, of course, a function of what? Literal interpretation. If you take the Bible literally, then Israel is Israel, and the church, however you understand that, is the church. And, and of course, there, Dr. Ryrie was taking on uh, uh, replacement theology directly and deliberately. But then the third synchronon, so I'm saying, if I lost you... (laughs) Dr. Ryrie, this has sometimes been called essentialist dispensationalism because he tried to get it down to the essentials of what, what, what really constitutes dispensationalism. And he said it is a consistent literal interpretation, a, a careful distinction between Israel and the church. But the third synchronone, which I thought at the time was such an important insight, uh, and still do, that's why I'm speaking on this this morning, the third element of the irreducible minimum of dispensationalism was a doxological understanding of human history as opposed to a soteriological. Now let's stop on that for just a moment because that may be a little harder to digest, but it really is central to who you are. By doxology, we simply mean doxos is the New Testament word for glory. And doxological simply means that human history is about the glory of God as opposed to soteriological which, which makes human history about the salvation of men. Uh, and and, and what, I'm, what I want us to think about this morning is the way in which literalism, premillennialism, I wish I could say that more briefly, but it really is all of a piece, the way in which literalism slash premillennialism honors the glory of God, the specific ways 
to a degree uh, which, is, which is so much greater than competing ideologies, competing constructs, competing, if you don't mind, eschatology. So I think that's a very secondary element. Of, not, not secondary, but, but, but the real issue is how we read the scripture because how we read the scripture determines the eschatology to which we come, right? What we believe about the end times is entirely a function of whether or not we take the Bible literally. So what I'm saying to you is that you have these two primary competing ideologies. And the one, let's call it amillennialism, which is a function of some measure of allegorizing or spiritualizing hermeneutics, and which will involve to some degree or another replacement theology, which is in fact the notion that Israel, by reason of her faithlessness, has been replaced by the church. So here you have, I want to make sure we're all on the same page here, you're with me. Here you have on one side of the ideological divide uh, many, many believing, wonderful Christians who nonetheless have bought into a worldview which, which, which begins with some measure of spiritualizing hermeneutic, which sets them free to embrace the notion that God has replaced Israel with the church. The promises made to Israel have been withdrawn, rescinded, and given to the church, and therefore they are functionally amillennial. They reject the notion of an end-time drama. They believe that the kingdom was redefined in the New Testament and was in fact established at the cross and the kingdom is here today. I've said to you before that one of the most melancholy elements of amillennial eschatology is the notion that this is as good as God can do with human history. It'll never get any better than this. And that beautiful picture that Rennie painted for us of the day when, when the Son of Man, our kinsman redeemer, will lay claim to this earth. You know what? I'm interrupting myself. <laughs> it, to me, it is so instructive, folks, that when God made that first promise of a coming redeemer in Genesis chapter 3, in what we call the Proto-Evangelium, remember that? When God promises, was referenced several times this morning, that he would raise up from the seed of the woman one who would crush the skull of the serpent, who would stand as a victor over the slain body of that, of, 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 of that, that rebel, a Lucifer, Satan. When God made that promise, which we regard as the first breath of gospel truth, he wasn't talking to Adam and Eve. I think it is so instructive that he was talking to Satan. And what he was saying is, Satan, I am going to crush your skull. This is not over. And before it is over, I'm going to reclaim this earth, this earth. Just as, as, as we heard this morning so magisterially. You know, Adam and Eve were happy eavesdroppers. Honest to goodness. I think they were thrilled Wait a minute. God's going to raise up one who's going to actually undo this? Who's going to redeem us from this curse? But what God was talking about and what Paul has in mind when he talks about the earth which groans, uh, the, the physical earth waiting for its day of redemption, 
is in fact uh, what, what, what God was talking about was the redemption of this earth. And, and, and our millennialism looks about and, uh, today and says, well, this is it. It's been accomplished. I don't think so. But I lose my way. The point is we have these two competing ideologies. And on the one hand, you have this construct, which, as I'm going to say it again, begins, must begin, this is the second century of church history, with, an ideolo- with a uh, hermeneutic of spiritualizing certain texts And that sets them free to embrace this notion that Israel has been permanently replaced by the church. And that issues in the notion that the kingdom is already here and so we have nothing to look forward to. There is no end time drama. Our millennialists do not have prophecy conferences. See what I'm saying? They don't believe in an end time drama. They think it's already here. The competing ideology, that which is embraced in this place happily, is that in fact the Bible ought to be read literally in all of its parts, and that drives you necessarily inexorably to the conclusion that Israel is Israel and the church is the church, and the drama which is described in the Old Testament and the New is in fact yet to occur. There is an end time drama, and that end time drama will eventuate in a generation of Jewish people who look upon the one whom once they pierced and, 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 and God pours out a spirit of grace and supplication and Israel uh, comes to faith and is instit- initiated into a glorious kingdom at the, at the end of earth history and that is premillennialism and I'm arguing, I gotta get to it, that one of the great, one of the great blessednesses of premillennialism is that it celebrates and honors the glory of God. Now, I, I lost my way. So, <laughs> I was talking about that third element of the sin quinone, and I said that what Dr. Ryrie argued was that a one element of dispensationalism is that it is doxological in its primary orientation. In other words, it regards human history as fundamentally and most importantly about God's glory. It put God, puts God in His glory. Now at the center of human, human history. Now, here's where I was taking you. The fact is that the amillennial community, frankly, I don't know how else to say it, went berserk. They were so scandalized. And, and, and I understand. But their argument was, wait a minute. We are the one. we own the glory of God. We're the ones who taught you to appreciate the glory of God. You can't tell us that you have something to teach us about God's glory, about honoring God as the sovereign of the universe. And I'll confess to you to a certain degree, I think there's some truth in that, that that has been something they have emphasized happily enough. But I am going to argue that there is that about their theology which compromises it regardless of how much they celebrate it in, 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 in their expression. The fact is that amillennial slash replacement theology compromises the glory of God in some very significant ways. I'd like, in the time that I have, to explore four. And uh, just one this morning. Don't get worried. But um, so, so um, and, and I, I call this what premillennialism brings to theology proper. And, and I only use this because there are some quotes, and many of you won't be able to see them, but I don't have anywhere else, so I have to read them off of here. But um, so I say there, in a way and to a degree distinguishable from any competing construct. You know what I mean by construct? Just the sort of frame of reference, the way you look at things. 
uh, literalism slash premillennialism. Because I, I want to emphasize, the reason I use the phrase that way is I want to emphasize that premillennialism is not some freestanding set of ideas which arises from a verse or two or from one passage in Revelation 20. Premillennialism is a function of literally reading the Bible. So to the degree that you embrace consistent literalism, you are going to be forced happily enough. And by the way, uh, virtually everybody will acknowledge this. But having said it, that literalism, premillennialism, honors what I'm going to call the ineffable integrity of the person of God. And when I, I use the word ineffable very, very carefully. It means just shining with a brilliance that is, that, that is impossible to look upon. And, and, and all throughout Scripture, God represents his, his integrity, his covenant-keeping character. I have been of late uh, spending time in the, in the corpus of the kings, in Samuel King. I just made up my mind that for several months I was going to reread read and reread and listen and re-listen to, uh, do you do that, by the way? I've become an evangelist of this. I probably, this is a total timeout. I, look, are, don't, aren't we all a little bit, am I the only guy in the room who's a little bit ashamed that I don't spend more time actually reading the scriptures, that I don't have enough hours in the day? I listen on an iPod. I probably listen to the Bible, and I'm not, I'm not, this is not by way of boasting, but I probably listen at least two hours a day. But it's all time in the car, time, you know, when I, frankly, when I lay down at night, I have something, some, some portion of Scripture that I'm listening to as I fall off asleep. As, I, as a matter of fact, I think a little Pavlovian thing may be going on here because I notice lately when I turn it on, I get sleepy, but I hope that's not, <laughs> that's not the case. But, um, but at any rate, um, uh, I have just been spending as much time as I could reading and rereading uh, the, the, the Corpus of the Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Kings in the Hebrew Bible, and, and just focusing on the degree to which that document is all about God's covenant-keeping character over against the horrible carelessness and faithlessness of Israel to that same covenant. God makes covenant, he keeps covenant. And, and this is so central to who God is. And so I'm going to suggest on a couple of counts that to deny literalism, premillennialism, is to compromise this element of what the Bible has to say about... Now, it is necessarily to compromise what the Bible has to say about, about God's ineffable integrity, that he keeps his word. And I'd suggest that on, on, on two counts. First of all, as I say, uh, God does not rescind his covenant promises. God walked alone through the pieces in Genesis 15. Do you realize the significance of that? You know, I, I think most of you are familiar with this, but in Genesis 15, having already made promise to Abraham... But uh, by reason of the fact that time had gone by and Abraham's faith was staggering, God condescended to actually cut a covenant. Now, I think most of you are familiar with this, but, but uh, very, very briefly, this was part of the culture. We sometimes have, it's the hubris of modernity. We have this notion that ancient peoples were so primitive. And, and these people were well, they were so, in so many ways, they're advanced beyond what, what we're capable of. But the fact is that they had legal protocols. 
And uh, if you were, in fact, to buy a piece of land or any sort of a contractual relationship, uh, you would actually cut a covenant. The word Hebrew word barith means cutting. And that seems to come almost entirely from this reality that when a covenant was made, uh, you would take an animal and you would butcher the animal and you would cut it in half and you would lay the pieces over against each other. And then in the presence of witnesses, who would then attach their seal to this, in the presence of witnesses, you would pass with your partner. In other words, the person to whom, with whom you were making the covenant arrangement, you would pass through the pieces and you would recite. If I'm buying a piece of land, I recite, uh, you know, the, the owner, the, the person who is selling it recites the, uh, the, the dimensions of the land from this point to that point. I recite exactly what I'll pay and what penalties I'll, I'll, uh, will befall me if I, uh, if I fail and so on. And the reason we are passing between the pieces is because it is a blood covenant and we are, we are publicly acknowledging if I fail in my part of the covenant, you do to me what we did to the animal. That's why it's a blood covenant. And it is so significant that in Genesis 15, God causes a deep sleep to come upon Abram, having instructed him to divide the animals and so on. And then as Abraham sleeps, this, this, this burning Fire, again, this brilliant light by which God so often represents himself in the Old Testament, passes alone through the pieces, which is to say it is an absolutely unilateral covenant. God is demanding nothing in terms of the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham and his people. He is going to fulfill them. Does that make sense to you? And, 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 and that's Now, very quickly, the fact is, and, and it's, it's very interesting, and if you... If you if you become anything of a student uh, of, of, of amillennial theology and so on and its history, it, it, they, they've, they've grown a little bit in, in many quarters. They're a little embarrassed by simply saying out loud, well, God made promises to Israel and then he withdrew those promises. So there will be a lot of sort of careful terminology. Well, it's not replacement theology, it's fulfillment theology. He didn't, uh, you know, Israel was only the, uh, the type, and the type has fallen away, and now you have the body, and so God never understood it, and never meant it to be understood as really meaning Israel and so on. But the fact of the matter is, and this is where I just want to give you some quotes, and so I, I, I brought them along. Uh, hold on here. Um, Albertus Peters, who was a, was a Reformed theologian, I'm going to read this to you, in the... Uh, in the uh, uh, first three quarters of this century, uh, middle of this, uh, I'm sorry, the 20th century, he says, God willed that after the institution of the new covenant, by the way, where do you go to read about the new covenant most explicitly in the Old Testament? Jeremiah 31. And to whom is that new covenant made? And what does he go on to say? Matter of fact, I'll give it to you later on. The sun and moon should stop shining before I break my covenant to Israel. Couldn't be more explicit. But he says, that um, God willed that after the institution of the new covenant, there should no longer be any Jewish people in the world. Yet here they are. That's a fact, a very sad fact, brought about by their wicked rebellion against God. Now, my point is there's a lot about this quote which is odious. This is pure, unvarnished replacement theology. But, well, let me go to the next quote, which is, oh, I have some... He says... Uh, same theologian, ignorant that their separateness from the rest of the world was in the divine purpose temporary. All right, what does he mean by that? God certainly made a covenant with Israel that he never made with any other people on earth. So they were distinct from all the people. As a matter of fact, God says in Exodus 19 
that in order for his purpose to be fulfilled, he was going to make of Israel a kingdom with a priestly capacity and a holy or set-apart nation. And they were set apart physically, but they were set apart in the sense that they had a relationship with God, have a relationship with God that no other people. But he says God intended that to be temporary, and so they strove to render it permanent. And thus that which had been in itself good and holy became through their error a source of poison in the life of the world. And the Jew became the great persistent international problem. Now, there's a, again, there's a lot that we could say about, well, you know, i got to say this. One of the most delightful and amazing phenomena of my brief and insignificant life is the explosion of interest, but that's not right, is, is the way that so many in the Jewish world in the last decade have become, have become open to Christianity because of their discovery that there's a brand of Christianity which doesn't believe this. Or to say it another way, the fact that Jews for the last several hundred years have been taught from their youth up that the greatest enemy they have on the earth is Christians is because of this theology. So there are so many things that are wrong about this. We all know it. But the point is that where I'm taking you, here I got some, I forgot I had those. Here's another uh, replacement theologian. And uh, he affirms that Israel would no longer be the people of God. By the way, this is a quote from Michael Vlock. And uh, Dr. Vlock teaches at Master Seminary in California. He did his uh, doctoral dissertation on, at uh, Southeastern Seminary, if you're interested, on supersessionism or replacement theology. And he's really become a very important voice. If you're ever interested, uh, chase that name down if you're doing any work on, on this uh, approach to Scripture, that is replacement theology. But he says, he quotes Rundell, uh, La Rundell, as saying that Israel would no longer be the people of God, would be replaced by a people that would accept the Messiah and his message of the kingdom. And uh, it was, it was, it was uh, uh, according to La Rendell, the people who would replace Israel is the church, and they replace the Christ-rejecting nation. Uh, let me give you one other one. Now, if, if I'm reading these things. Why? Because I want you to see that according to this approach, this theology, this set of ideas... God did. They acknowledge, make promises to Israel, but it's been withdrawn. Somehow they've been replaced. So God has made promise and then late in the game revealed that he didn't mean what they thought he meant. That the promise is not theirs, but somebody else's. I don't know how you can possibly contemplate that without realizing that God's character is in question here, at stake, isn't it? What kind of God is this? Well, i got to hurry. Oops, I forgot to read it. Uh, with the establishment of the Christian church, this is uh, Lorraine Bettner. You may know his, his, his name. He's a very... And I, 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 I don't want to paint with a broad brush. There are some things that I've, I've, I've learned from Lorraine Bettner by, reason, by way of his books and so on, but this, this, is, this is his view on, on how to understand God's promises to Israel. And he says, with the establishment of the Christian church, Judaism should have made a smooth and willing transition into Christianity, and should thereby have disappeared as the flower falls away from the developing fruit. You know, I told you a minute ago, maybe some minutes, that, that really what we're talking about here is a worldview, right? If you believe this, how do you think about the nation of Israel? See, you're, you're almost frustrated. They should have disappeared. Now, these, this, this from a community which celebrates the sovereignty of God. 
And God intended that they disappear, but they're still here. And he can't get rid of them. Now, I'm being a little facetious about not too much, but, but the fact is, if you take a premillennialist worldview, you look at Israel and you say, what a God we serve. You know, you never, ever met a Hittite. Am I not right about that? See, all of those people are gone. And yet here's this one ancient people who have survived without a land. Wow. From this worldview, you're saying, oh, God intended for them to disappear, and they're still around. Well, I go a little further. He says, it's continuation after the time of Christ, and particularly it's revival after the judgment of God had fallen on so severely in the destruction of Jerusalem, the dispersal of the people of 70 A.D., was sinful. It was sinful for them to survive. And he goes on to say the continuance of this bitterly anti-Christian racial group, and he's talking about Israel, Jew, the Jews, has brought no good to themselves and has been uh, strife and antagonism in practically every nation where they have gone. So it's pretty much the fault of the Jews because God intended for them to pass away. Now again, I'm going to say there are all sorts of things about that statement which are hideous and odious. But what I want you to focus on for just a moment is the, is the absolutely necessary uh, persuasion that somehow God, having made promises to Israel, has totally abandoned those promises and, in, 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 and intends for Israel pretty much to disappear. Uh, well, I'll leave it at that. Now, over against that. Uh, you know, by the way, I was... I may have said this to you before, some of you, but I, I was, was um, oh, I found myself in a situation, I won't go into it at all, but, but, I, but, but I had been sort of uh, set up, and uh, uh, what I thought was uh, just a teaching opportunity turned out to be, uh, you know, kind of a debate between me and a couple other guys over this issue, which was fine, but as, as the thing unfolded, uh, and, and the fellow I was going toe-to-toe -to -toe with primarily was, he's a good friend and a wonderful guy. As a matter of fact, he's a man who was raised premillennial and abandoned it and has become rapidly um, amillennial, replacement theologian. But he said to me, he said, well, Doug, the fact is that the only reason that Israel in the Old Testament thought that God was making promises, see, he would say, he would say, no, no, God didn't make them to Israel and take them away. He, he spoke of them to Israel, but he really intended them for the church, but it took the maturity of the New Testament to be able to see that. And so his argument was that God, the only reason Israel thought that those promises were intended for them was immaturity. And given the maturity of the New Testament, we can now read that back into the Old Testament and realize that's not what he meant. And I said, Jason, the reason Israel thought that those promises were for them is because God said they were for them. That's the point. A, a God who, who, who uses words which can only be understood one way and then later on explains or, or reveals that that's not what he meant, the conclusion to which you necessarily came, given the words that he used, is not the conclusion to which he intended you to come. There's no integrity in that. There's no integrity in that. And that's why it's so much, so much at, at, at stake. Now, let me say one other thing. You know, you know that in the Old Testament, names are descriptors. They're more than just monikers or titles. They mean something. And look at Exodus 6 and verse 3. This, this verse, interestingly enough, 
Uh, most of you are familiar with this, but let me just rehearse it. It's worth rehearsing at any rate now and again. But the significance of this name, which God had, had employed, had used of himself for, for, since, since Adam, but, but in the Exodus account, in, in, in connection with God's revelation of himself to Moses, calling him to be the great deliverer and so on, in Exodus 6 and verse 3, God says, I appeared to Abraham, excuse me, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, Lord, I was not known to them. Now, real quickly, I won't go anywhere with this, but I, do you realize that this is the basis of the whole nonsensical documentary, JEDP, Graf Wellhausen theory, and so on? Uh, he came to this verse and he said, Well, wait a minute, Exodus says that the Israelites did not know the name Yahweh, and yet Genesis uses the name Yahweh, so we must have various authors and various strands of tradition. And then he pretended to be able to tease them out and gave us the Yahwist and the Elohist and the Deuteronomist and the priestly writer and all that nonsense. Uh, by the way, wait, I'm in the middle of a by the way, but, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, fact is, the fact is that it is so important to read the Old Testament in its own culture. And, and the word know, K-N-O-W, almost always in the Old Testament means more than awareness, cognizance, mental knowledge as we would call it. It means relationship. It means affection. Uh, again and again, the, the, the operative verse here is Amos 3 where God says to Israel, you of all the nations of the earth have I known. It doesn't mean he never heard of the Philistines for heaven's sakes. It means that he had a relationship with them and, and when he says here, they haven't known me, what they mean is they have not known, they haven't cherished this name. Now they came to. Because God put on display his, 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 his covenant-keeping nature when he delivered Israel from Egypt. Now I didn't leave myself nearly enough time for this, but very, very quickly, very simply. You'll remember that when Moses at the burning bush said, because Moses had just been given a commission which was on the face of it incredible. The most, fa most powerful nation on, the, all the, uh, on all the face of the earth was Egypt. Israel was but a slave people. Humanly, there was no way conceivable that they could find deliverance. They had been so carefully uh, downtrodden. And yet God said, I'm going to bring them out. Moses, I'm going to do it through you. And you need to go tell them that. And so Moses says, I need to so know something about who you are which will give them confidence. So tell me, what is your name? And God's response was, you tell them the I am hath sent them. Now, what's the significance of that name? Again, in that culture, as in ours, uh, when you made promise, you would do it on the basis of something that was perceived to be timeless, eternal. We do it today. Uh, we say, you're on the back porch with your affianced, you know, all those years ago in the case of some of us, and, you know, the moon is full, and she looks at you, gentlemen, and says, do you love me? And you say, oh, I do, I, I love you, sweetheart. And how long will you love me? And, uh, you know, till the leaves fall off the tree, that's no good. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, it's got to be something timeless, right? And we do this. Well, by the same token, uh, w w Israel would do that. And, and Hebrews says, 613, that when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, by his own name. The point is, the word I am, the name Yahweh, refers to the fact that it is God's nature to exist. If you had a name, which was the immediate conceptual counterpart of that name, your name would be, I began to be. That's your nature. You're a creature. There was when you were not. 
but you have been called into existence. By the same token, God's name is I am. There never was when he was not. It is his very nature to exist. Therefore, he cannot possibly pass out of existence, but Psalm 138 has placed his word above his name. The fact is that God would sooner pass out of existence than break his word. And, 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 and he swears on the basis of his name, Yahweh. Now, he did not swear on that in the Mosaic setting. He swore on, that, on his name to Abraham. But the fact of the matter is that when Israel was in Egypt and, and Moses wanted to know, what is there about you, God, that would give us any confidence that you, in fact, are going to bring us out of Egypt, as unthinkable as that is? And God's reply was, you tell him, I am the God whose nature it is to exist, and I have sworn on my name. And God is going to keep his covenant. And, and, and it is so, so important to acknowledge this reality in the person of God. And to the degree that any set of ideas compromises, however quietly, the reality that God is a covenant-keeping God, it seems to me the glory of God is compromised. Does that make sense to you? And I just think it is absolutely intrinsic to that set of ideas that says that God made promise to Israel and then under whatever set of carefully crafted terms and phrases, the contention is that he withdrew that promise and gave it to another body, the church. God's character is at stake here. Would you not agree? Now, I've often said that there's something else at stake, and that is our, our ability to have any confidence in the promises he's made us. I mean, I want to, you know, I, I've, Steve said earlier as he took us to the throne that we have staked not only this life but our eternal destiny on the promises of this book. Maybe there's another stage of revelation that we can't anticipate where God's going to come along and say, you thought I meant that if you trusted in Christ, that's all I ask of you? Well, what I really meant was, well, bingo, we're all, we're all in deep water. So, so what I'm saying is, Honest to goodness, though, I don't want to focus on just how it impacts us and our confidence. I want you to see that there's nothing less than the character of the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, at stake.